Father in heaven, we do thank you so much that even though we are in one sense distanced from one another, we can still gather together online. And we pray that as we look at these verses this morning, as we hear your voice through your word, those words would change us. Thank you that um, you can speak to all kinds of people in all kinds of contexts and situations. You know us, you know what we need to hear. And so we pray that you would encourage us. We pray that you would challenge us. We pray that you would equip us to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, around about 26 years ago in the New York Times, about this time of year, um, there was an advert on the front page of the newspaper and the advert said this, it said the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. That is, there's enough within us to get rid of the darkness ourselves, to, to deal with the problems of the world ourselves, the problems of poverty, injustice, violence, evil, COVID. If we all pull together, we will be able to create a world of unity and peace. At least that was the claim 26 years ago. I'd love to believe that were true. I'm not so sure the Bible would agree with it. You see, at the very heart of the story of the Bible in one sense is that however hard we try, however much we pull together, how, however earnest and wholehearted and, and unified we are, it never works. And it never works because of what's going on inside us. The, the fundamental problem of the world is not out there somewhere. And if only we could eradicate it and then it would be easy. And the fundamental problem is us. It, it, it's you and it's me. And to have any kind of hope at all of putting together a world of unity and peace, we'll need something or someone to come and change us, not, not just superficially, but foundationally, the very core, the heart of who we are. And so we find ourselves in Isaiah again this morning as we're leading up to Christmas in this season of Advent. And this week it's chapter 11. Do you remember Isaiah is a book of prophecies? They were written hundreds of years before Jesus, but pointing us to him and, and beyond him. And so it's a book of hope. And chapter 11, in one sense, then, is another shot in the arm. It's, it's keeping our eyes lifted. It's keeping us going, keeping us running to the end when, when life is hard, when it all feels dark. Because we, we can lose our motivation, can't we? And we can struggle sometimes to trust that God is in charge and that it is worth it. And that we should keep going. And so passages like this help us to press on, help us to keep trusting in, help us to see what the end goal is. And so God focuses our eyes on what's to come. And I think this week it's, it's more focused than before, actually. In previous chapters, if you like, it's been a little uh, pixelated or a little fuzzy or just focusing on different aspects. This week we get increasing clarity as to what's to come. Um, have a look down at the text with me that Christine read for us, if you can, and you'll see it's a text that splits nicely into two. Um, verses one to five, if you like headings, the, the perfect ruler. Verse six to nine, the place of peace. So one to five, the perfect ruler, six to nine, 
the place of peace. And let's zoom in first on the perfect ruler. It's just worth saying the backdrop to all of these prophecies when, as initially given were, were King Ahaz. He was the ruler of God's people in the south at the time. And, and he faced a decision in the midst of political uncertainty, in the midst of his and the nation's fragility. The decision was either to trust God for deliverance or it was to make an alliance with Assyria for them to protect him. And Ahaz went with the latter. He made a deal with Assyria, with their enemies. He jumped into bed with the enemy, which, which was to be his downfall. Now, just in passing, it's striking that in chapter 10, the passage just before this one, Assyria, like a huge tree, would end up being chopped down to size by God. Ahaz made the wrong choice. And as we look at chapter 11 this morning, it's striking that in chapter 5, Judah was seen to be wise in her own eyes and clever in her own sight. And in chapter 8, in the midst of turmoil, everyone is consulted except God. And so as we are introduced to this perfect ruler in verses 1 to 5, aren't they just a breath of fresh air for us? Because the spirit of wisdom and understanding will rest upon him. And the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord will be with him. Here is a ruler who rules in contrast to Ahaz, in contrast to the people. He rules for God, under God, listening to God, knowing God. But who is this ruler? Who is this one that Isaiah speaks of? Well, well verse one is curious. You see, a, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Again, if we'd spent more time in early Isaiah rather than just these Advent passages, passages we, would, we would know that the Lord had disciplined his people. He had punished them and, and called them back to himself because their hearts were far from him. In chapter six, actually, it's explicit. You can flick back there now if you like it. It's chapter six and verse 11. Then he said, for how long, O Lord? This is Isaiah saying, how long are you going to punish your people? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will be again laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. You see, the land is to be forsaken for a time, but we are not without hope. Because although the tree has been chopped down and it looks dead and it looks finished and it looks like game over even, well, no, from the stump of Jesse comes growth. The roots are still alive and, and a shoot will sprout and hope is not lost. A number of years ago, we had a tree removed from our front garden, quite a big tree, looking a little precarious. Um, and the tree surgeons came and did some measurements and took some readings and they thought it was, it was rotten and, or not, not great, needed to be um, dealt with. And they chopped it down um, and they left a huge stump behind and we still have it now. A massive gap where the tree had been in our, in our front garden. And for months it was dormant. But then we moved from summer to autumn and autumn to winter and winter to spring. 
And you know what? Signs of life began to appear from this stump. You can still see them now. It's it sprung up with new growth again. It looked like it was game over, but it wasn't. In the roots were life. And so by spring, they returned. Well, so this family tree in Isaiah 11 has not been decimated either. The, the tree was chopped down, but, but it wasn't game over. God disciplined his people, but it wasn't forever. Now, Jesse, Jesse was King David's father. Do you remember him as he gathered all his sons before the prophet Samuel one by one, waiting to hear which one God had chosen as king? And then finally he said, have you got any more sons? And Jesse goes out to the fields and brings King David, the shepherd, the youngest of the sons. And then later on, the promise of God to King David, that from him would come a ruler, a ruler who would, who would lead forever from the line of David. Have a look at what this ruler is going to be like. Have a look down at verse 2, Isaiah 11, verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to spot the repetition. God's spirit will rest upon this king and will remain with this king. Now think Jesus, think his baptism. Think the spirit descending and remaining with him. Think his, his close walking with his father. Do you see what, what sort of ruler he will be? What, what the spirit will work in him? A spirit of wisdom and understanding. A leader who rather than ruling in ignorance or stupidity or having bad advisors or being duped by others or rather than simply being a crowd pleaser who who simply after popularity and being liked by others. Here is a ruler who will have the spirit of wisdom and understanding upon him. It's the language of judging well. It's the language of wise governing. No eye rolls from us at the decisions they make. No cause for cynicism in our hearts. No scratching our heads as to why that policy and how does that match up with that? Or that just feels like such a speedy U-turn. God promises one who will govern well. Don't you just love the way that Jesus interacted with people in the Gospels? His his wisdom and his understanding. Think of his careful words and his answers when, when challenged by enemies trying to trap him, trying to ensnare him. Think of his explanation and exposition of the scriptures. Words you can trust, actions that match up. A ruler who's full of wisdom and understanding. But as well as wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, which I think will mean he doesn't just know the right course of action to take, but he's able to get us there. Counsel and might is about, is about strategy and strength. It's an ability not to just talk about something, but to make it happen. 
Again, think of the Gospels and the way in which Jesus had authority over all that was wrong with the world. Wasn't it refreshing whether sickness or spiritual forces or sin or disease or demons or darkness, a world that had walked out on God, and yet Jesus comes in with authority, mighty. And yet foundational to those two things you get the end of verse two and verse three the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the lord and he will delight in the fear of the lord you see i guess you could have a leader you could have a leader who was who was anointed who was super wise and understanding super strategic super strong but but simply in it for himself gifted but it was all about them, self-serving, self-centred. And so foundational to those two things, we can set our minds at rest because he is a leader who fears the Lord, indeed, who delights in the Lord. This is not worldly wisdom. This is not a worldly ruler. This is true wisdom. This is leadership as it was intended to be, under God, for God. And if that's something of what he's like, then what will he do? Well, have a look down at verse three. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. You see, his judgment will be totally fair. There will never be a miscarriage of justice. There will never be an outcry at the decision of this judge. There will never be the need for a judicial review. He will never be in it for selfish reasons. He will never be biased. He won't be distracted by fame or money or power or political expedience like Israel's rulers. He won't be swayed by public opinion or clever lawyers or spin doctors. But rather he will judge as the Lord would have him judge. He will look out for those who no one else looks out for. He will be a king who is righteous and just and good. A king that we can trust. A king that we can entrust ourselves to. I was... um. I was surprised, perhaps a better word is perturbed recently, when I read that in the last few years here in the UK, there have been a shocking number of judges and magistrates that have been fired or resigned due to, due to various reasons, due to accepting bribes or inappropriate behaviour towards defendants or being involved in illegal activities. People we thought we could trust, people we we thought who loved justice, and yet were biased, were in it for themselves. But not so this ruler from Isaiah 11, not so the Lord Jesus. And you know, friends, his words will be decisive. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. These words are powerful and strong and final. 
And at the end, when the judgment of Jesus is complete, and when people finally get what they fully deserve according to the righteousness and justice of God, no one will turn around and say, this is not fair. Because they will see that it is. He is the perfectly righteous one and he will judge with perfect righteousness. He can't not do that. Jesus will be the perfect ruler. And, you know, he will rule a place of peace, secondly. Verse six to nine, a place of peace. Let me read those verses again for us. Extraordinary chapter, extraordinary verses. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, it's a, it's a total transformation of the created order. I take it it's, in a sense, poetic, it's figurative language. But you see, it tells the story of the world as it was meant to be. Just as we walk out on God, we walk out on our king, the one who made us. And so all of creation is out of kilter, right back in Genesis 3. And so with God back as our ruler again, the glimpse we get in this chapter, he's back in his rightful place and everything is as it was meant to be. The, the enmity between species has gone. So then in verse 6, there's, there's reconciliation. The, the predator is being welcomed in for their tea by the prey. There are lambs eating with wolves rather than being eaten by wolves. There are goats resting with leopards rather than running for their lives from leopards. No longer are they enemies. It's as if they're friends. And actually, it's not just one generation. It's not just a superficial, simple, short-term change. Do you see verse 7? Their, their behaviour has changed. The behaviour of their offspring has changed too. There's peace, there's harmony. This is creation recreated. Maybe our question at this point is, ought to be how. How, how is this possible? When is this possible? What, what is going on in these verses? That's simply poetry, simply a nice idea. Well, I think verse 8 is really interesting. If you've got a Bible there, have a look down with me at verse 8. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. And do you know why that's striking? I'm not sure that it's simply another example of peace, another example of reconciliation. I think up until this last week, I thought it probably was, but I'm convinced now it's more explicit than that. This is loaded language. This is Isaiah giving us a hint as to how we get to this point, because pretty much wherever we read of snakes in the scriptures, we're meant to have in mind God's promise to Eve at the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis 3. Do you remember 
just after Satan in the form of a snake has tempted Eve to, to turn from God and everything is broken now. Well, God says, Genesis 3 verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Remember that promise, there will be a time of conflict, but one day, one day, the climax of the story, an offspring of Eve will be a serpent crusher. One day there will be one who will come and defeat Satan forever. And what do we have here? The enmity between humanity and the serpent is gone. It's, it's Genesis 3 flipped on its head again. Satan has been defeated. You've got babies and cobras playing in harmony. This is an end to the groaning of creation that we saw in Romans 8 at the start of the year and that we've experienced these last 12 months. Creation waiting for the final coming of the Lord. And how do we get there? Well, Isaiah is an interesting book. It's an enormous prophecy. I remember when I was at seminary, I wrote an essay on kingship in Isaiah. The role of kings as you read through all 66 chapters of this prophecy. And it's striking because here at the start, we have all these prophecies about God's king from David's line. A, a baby being born, wonderful counsellor, mighty God, a, a king who will be God with us, Emmanuel. A king born of a virgin, a shoot from Jesse's stump, as we've just seen this morning. But then those Christmas prophecies at the start of the book, where we've been for the last few weeks, set the agenda in a sense, are supplemented as the book goes on with more prophecies about God's king. He's going to come and he will be a he will be a suffering servant. He will come and die for his people. He will be pierced for their transgressions and bruised for their iniquities. And then even more clarity in the last few chapters there will be an anointed conquering king who will come and bring freedom for his people, who will set up a new heavens and a new earth. And they almost sound like three different people, three different kings. But I take it they're not. You see, Isaiah doesn't simply point us ahead to Christmas. He points us ahead to Easter and indeed to the return of Jesus as well. God's promised king would die on a cross, taking our sin and iniquity upon himself, taking God's righteous justice and anger against our sin upon himself. And he would die and he would be raised again. And so he would bring in a new creation, the old Adam gone, a new one is here. The grave becomes a garden. A place of peace and reconciliation, indeed pointing us on to more to come. The beginning of that new creation finally consummated when Jesus returns again. Do you long for a time like that? I do. You see, the fundamental problem with the world cannot be fixed by us because we are a big part of the problem. The problem is not over there somewhere. The problem is in here. Which means, which means the meaning of Christmas is not that love will triumph and we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. 
but rather the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and he will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Because he will be the one who will come and deal with our hearts, deal with our sin, change us into his likeness. And here we get a glimpse in Isaiah 11 of what that will look like. It's going to be a global thing. The, the holy mountain where God dwells and all creation dwells with him will be perfect and it will be peaceful. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's still our hope. That is the glimpse of what is to come. And so, brothers and sisters, let us keep running and keep trusting him and keep our eyes on the end of the race. And that will give us the ability to keep persevering. Let's pray. Lord, help us, please, to keep going. Help us to persevere. Help us to know that it's worth it. Help us, particularly at the end of a, of a dark and difficult year, to trust you. We thank you for this glimpse of Jesus this morning. Thank you that he is the perfect ruler, the one full of the spirit of the Lord, full of wisdom and understanding, full of counsel and might, underpinned with a fear of you and a delight in you. And we thank you for that place of peace as well. We thank you for... Thank you for the outworking of the reconciliation that Jesus brings. We thank you for creation once again being as it was meant to be. And we pray that you would help us to trust you. We pray that you would help us to keep walking, to keep running. Help us to keep our hearts fixed on the hope that is to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.